Welcome to episode 26 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my power-hungry co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Senor Kramer, how are you doing tonight? Well, Winston, I'm doing pretty good. It's uh, heating up here in Texas, South Texas, uh, starting to get our triple-digit days. Um, so that's kind of, it's, it's good to kind of anticipate the garage being air conditioned at some point soon. So, uh, right now it's like, uh, I think it's hotter in the garage than it is outside. How about you? That is a, that's horrifying. I just came back from a wedding this past weekend and upon landing in Los Angeles, it was like mid seventies, low humidity. And I went for a run and it is fantastic here. So I can't complain. Uh, my garage situation is I am considering putting some styrofoam in the garage door just to insulate it. But I mean, I feel like I could just work with the garage door open and just enjoy it. So um, I do not envy your situation. Actually, why don't you fill me on what you've been doing at work? Can you I haven't seen much? Uh, or I shouldn't say I haven't seen. I haven't kept up with Carbide's social media in the last couple of weeks. It's been a little bit of a lull just because the past couple projects have taken a little longer than I'd hoped. Um, mainly these, these past couple aluminum projects have involved anodizing and, uh, it's been a long process of trial and error to try and get that process right. So I've been working with, uh, JPL Richard, um, Instagram at JPL underscore Richard, and we've been trying to do some DIY anodizing. He has a setup, he's gotten some success before, so I figured I'd just piggyback on his setup and we could knock out some parts and... When I got there, we went through the motions of anodizing, and we got partial success. Our clear coat worked, our color anodizing did not work, and like I went to his house like three, three or four times, um, and each time like we'd get something right, we'd like lock down a variable, and something else would change, um, and so because of these back and forth like just experimental anodizing attempts uh, I just I I haven't been able to wrap up projects and like I'd have to be like all right this project will come out next week and it's just it's extra time that sort of slows me down a little bit um, and there's a couple other carbide videos in the queue that I'm waiting on small tweaks to carbide create because I think um, the process that I show would be obsolete as soon as we make some small improvements um, so, I mean, I've got content banked up. It's just I'm, I'm waiting for everything to work out just right. Um, but anodizing was the biggest one because if if I if we didn't get it done in one session, I'd come back the next week, and if that didn't work, I'd come back the week after. And so that has been the biggest driver of the schedule shifting to the right. Um, anodizing is, like, there are videos out there, and there are, like, uh, instructions that you can follow to do it, but... Like it looks straightforward, but it's actually really tricky. There are a lot of variables that uh, I I need to lock down before I can get my own anodizing setup up and running. I think it was on uh, the Home Shop Machinist podcast. It's probably I can't remember Stefan. One of the hosts who said that uh, uh, anodizers are, anodizers and platers are machinists' worst friend or worst enemy. I'm sorry, but uh, and that's probably true. I remember what happened with the. Nicholas Hackle watch and their their first uh, 
Oh, the yeah. The first plate, yeah. So, uh, I mean, it's a tricky process, right? It's Everything has to go just right. And you only get one shot at it for the most part. Um, so I'm kind of curious, what did your, what constituted failure for you? Is it like uneven color or? Let, let me go chronologically since that's the easiest to remember. The first time we went out to anodize, um, I was wiring up the parts, stuck them in the sulfuric acid, running current through them. And some of the parts didn't have as good a mechanical connection to these. So Normally, when you go to a, a professional anodizing shop, they they have like all sorts of different ways to work hold material. They could be clips, they could be hooks, um, clamps, different ways to ensure a solid mechanical interface between the, um, the, the bus bar or the wire to your part. And if you don't have a, a good quality connection with um, like a positive pressure, um, you can develop the anodizing layer between the wire or your, your interface and your part, and you stop transmitting current through there, and the part stops getting anodized. Um, so if you don't, like, really, like, uh, I had a little a lot of little uh, bushings or washers for my monitor stand, and I, I sort of just passed some wires through them and, and just let them sit on it. But um, if you shook the wire, the little... Uh, bushings would also shake on the wire which means that they were sort of just rolling around on there being held in contact by gravity only and that was not a strong enough connection um, so after you anodize um, the the aluminum oxide structure is porous and open and so you want to seal that um, so that like when you pull a, a part fresh out of the anodizing anodizing tank and you draw on it with sharpie marker um in in the first couple hours, that uh, ink will actually penetrate into the oxide layer and you will not be able to wash it off. But if you boil the part and seal the pores of that oxide, um, then you can actually write on it and then just uh, use acetone or whatever and just wipe that off. Um, so you have to seal the parts. You can use uh, different chemicals to do it. Um, the easiest way for me is to just boil them and the, the bushings and some of the other parts that hadn't been properly anodized, like there was a little bit of an oxide layer, but not deep enough. Um, when I put them in boiling water, they basically just corroded underneath that thin oxide layer. Um, so I had to dunk them in lye, give them a scrub, uh, just strip that original coating and try again. Um, and so that second session, I came back with the parts that had failed to be anodized. I came back with some extra parts that I wanted to try color anodizing. And uh, we got a successful anodize on it, which you can tell by using a conductivity test. Uh, the oxide layer is non-conductive. So if you take uh, your multimeter and you put it on um, continuity mode and you just touch the two leads to the part... Um, if there's no continuity, that means the part has an oxide layer on it. We passed that test. Um, but when we went to go immerse the parts in dye, very little of it was absorbed into the oxide layer. Um, so you, you dunk the parts into the, the dye, they come out, and you put them in the boiling water to seal it in, and all that color just evaporates off the part. And you're left scratching your head as to why that happened. And through a little bit of uh, guessing, we surmised that the concentration of the acid wasn't quite right. Um, so as you anodize, 
the acid, well, the water in the the solution evaporates away. So your concentration is changing, um, but also you're losing a little bit of acid too because as the electrodes um, off-gas and, and bubble a little bit, you get a little bit of a, a mist or spray of acid that comes off the surface of your tank. Um, so the, the concentration is always fluctuating. And so after the first session, JPL Richard had tried to... Uh, um, evaporate out some of the excess water that we had put into it when we were uh, filling up the tank and he I think he dissolved through a a poor quality what he thought was stainless steel cooking vessel and so we lost a bunch of acid and the second session he sort of just was like all right we'll just put a little more water in there but the concentration of the acid had fallen below a sort of critical level I think nominally it should be like 15 to 18 percent by weight and we were way below that so we weren't getting a proper anodize. And the third session, he just bought fresh acid. Um, and we we had the right concentration. We tried the parts again. And we were still getting failures. And with, with all the other variables that we'd learned about, the continuity, the concentration, held down exactly... Um, we started to look at things like temperature. Uh, there's a, it's supposed to be between like 50 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit for a type two anodized and like close to like freezing, like 32 degrees uh, Fahrenheit or zero Celsius for a uh, type three hard anodized. We were at like 80, 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And that was the only thing we could think of that might've been causing our failures. So we dropped some ice in there, brought the temperature back down, got a good anodize. The parts um, held color, but it still wasn't quite perfect. And um, I think the variable there was temperature. Um, the dye is supposed to be held at around 140 degrees Fahrenheit. We thought like, oh, like 120, that's close enough. No, it's not. Um, and then also within that temperature range, we took our little jars of dye that we were dunking our parts in and we put them inside a larger pot filled with water, sort of like a, almost like a double boiler. But these jars were sitting on the bottom of the pot. And so the bottom of the jars was getting heated more. And so there was a color gradient across our parts. The further, the higher up they were in the jar, the less color was absorbed. And so just going through all these different trials and permutations to try and get one clean color anodized, um, I think I learned all the ways not to anodize but it was a really good process and um, having someone to go through those failures with um, made it a lot easier for me to learn and just be more comfortable. Like, all right, like I'm not an idiot. I know he's done it before, but we'll work through this. We'll get there eventually. And uh, with all these lessons learned, I think in the next month or two, I'm going to try and uh, build my own anodizing setup because as far as I'm concerned, if you're making an aluminum part that's going to be handled or touched, it should be um, preserved in some way because raw aluminum scratches really easily. So it, I think this is a process that I definitely want to fold into a lot of the projects that are coming up in my project queue. I, I hear you about the complexity and, and basically difficulty in dialing it in. Everyone, I, I kind of follow quite a few people who started home anodizing setups. They're doing it very well now, but it took them a while to get dialed in. I think they were suffering from a lot of the same things you were. It's uh, it seems to be like all come down to basically 
process control, right? Um, it's a wet chemistry lab and you got to, you know, every single thing matters. I don't know on the dye if the temperature has to do with affecting the viscosity of the dye or just, you know, the rate of chemical reaction. I think it's more just the absorption rate. But yeah, it's it's a lot more sensitive to, to these things than I thought. Like, you can't just sort of wing it. It's it's very much like baking or cooking. You, like you, there is a recipe for a reason, and you can only deviate so much before your your sourdough bread comes out looking like a scone. Yeah, it's like machining, right? There's loose tolerance work and tight tolerance work. And <laughs> I think this is on the uh, tighter end of the uh, of the band there. So I hope I'm, I hope you get it set up and get it working because I'll probably send you some stuff. <laughs> yeah, my biggest thing right now is just figuring out how do I store like a gallon of uh, concentrated sulfuric acid in a garage. Um, just making sure I have like a nice, solid, reliable plastic container that's not going to go brittle on me in a year or two. And uh, making sure I've got like just like a tarp that I can lay over everything sensitive and um, just isolating as much as I can uh, from some of the environmental factors like uh, the the area of my workbench where I'm probably going to be working is near the garage door so if that's open uh, you get you get a breeze going across it or you get the sun like just radiating on the acid which you're trying to keep cool and as you're anodizing as you're running current through there it's warming up so that might not be the ideal place to to put that setup but it's the only open spot I have so I got to just make sure everything is under control. Like I, I have um, ice that I can throw in the bath or if it's a windy day that I can sort of uh, just set up little shields around it to keep it from blowing the uh, acid spray across the rest of my workbench. Just little things like that. You know about the trick of putting the little uh, anti-evaporation balls in your tanks, right? Like covering the surface. Yeah, that's supposed to be a big help. So I've looked at the, the Caswell kit. They've got just physical barriers like that. I think they also have like, um, like anti-foaming agents and different things you can put in there to, to make it, um, less conducive to, to frothing up, but we'll get there. I, I have more fundamental issues to master before I get to that stage of, uh, fine tuning my setup. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'll be anodizing titanium here. Well, before I ever tackle something like aluminum it's so much easier <laughs> it's just like basically soapy water <laughs> that's all you need for yeah, a titanium you don't even need that like i remember uh, a make magazine article where it, it was like coca-cola and a nine volt battery or something yep i think you just need uh i think the soap i don't know if it actually has anything to do with anodizing chemistry i think it just makes it's acting as a wetting agent so the water's in contact with the titanium but yeah it couldn't be easier but then again, I don't machine that much titanium, so <laughs> I don't know what benefit that'll do me. So you, uh, what parts were you, I know you were doing the, the parts for the uh, monitor stand. What were the other pieces you were anodizing? Um, so I have a maker knife um, by Jaco over in Italy. And so I was making a bunch of cover plates for those and I wanted to do them in different colors just to try it out. Um, so that video is probably two or three weeks down the road, I kind of want to anodize my own here just to sort of complete that story before I release that project video. Um, but the other one was a, uh, cheese grater slash soap dish that I made in the style of the Apple Mac Pro, the new one that's coming out in late 2019. Oh, really? Is there a video about that? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, it, it showed up in a couple places around the internet, 
um, 20 different news sites of, of varying reputation. Uh, yeah, it's probably a large percentage of the listeners have seen that video by now, but I think Winston had his first really big viral uh, video with that cheese, the aluminum uh, apple style cheese grater soap dish slash cheese grater, I guess is <laughs> what it was. It has exceeded every expectation I had for it, which was not high to begin with, but um, just the the velocity of the, the view count growth has been staggering. It was a really cool part, and I liked the finish you did on it. Um, I got to look into that little mini air blaster thing that you have. But I, like you said, if you have the shop space for it, I highly recommend getting instead the either the cheap Harbor Freight little sandblasting cabinet or a, a better one and a proper sandblasting gun, because the with the volume of parts, um, even that you put out on a shape Oko. It's just, it takes too long. Anything more than a couple square inches is just really tedious to do. Um, so invest in a better sandblasting or abrasive media setup. Uh, that's that's my one bit of advice to you. And since you're building out the garage, I know you're going to have room for it. Yeah, and I think you said, I mean, if you do that kind of finish, you, you almost must anodize, right, to preserve that. It's kind of a... Like, if you put a piece down on a table that has just a little bit of grit on it, and you, you just slide it around just a little bit you will put scratches in the bottom of that part. Um, that texture just, it shows imperfections really easily. Um, and like, I even, the inside of this part, which uh, we'll, we'll probably link to in the show notes, um, there were a couple burrs in, inside the holes and the cutouts that passed through from one side to the other. I took a little file and just sanded down the burr after I had uh, blasted it. And the just on that little edge, you could see that shine of the filed aluminum stand out like a sore thumb compared to the satin finish everywhere else. So I had to just bring it back to my little table and just go at it with a little air eraser and, and just bring it back down to an even texture. But it is, it's, it's really sensitive to any sort of disturbances, any scratches, any nicks. Um, and also the, depending on the size of abrasive media you use, um, you may want to sort of polish out your part before you blast it. Um, if you're going at this without like a like a nice uh, finish pass with your end mill before you pull the part off, some of the deeper grooves or s- scratches or swirls might still show up. Um, Apple uses a much uh, heavier abrasive media than I'm using, which is a 220 grit aluminum oxide. So their texture um, is a little more coarse, although it still feels smooth. But visually, it's it's not nearly as, uh, I mean, it, it almost doesn't look like aluminum at this point. It almost looks like paper or, or something um, synthetic. Yeah, I always like that look. So what was your, uh, did you reverse engineer just from, uh, I'm sorry, the pattern on the cheese grater? Did you just reverse engineer that from looking at it or was there, is there like a model Just looking template? at it. I mean, yeah. I was watching the keynote and as soon as I saw that, I and I heard them say it was machined on both sides. I figured it had to be a a relatively simple geometric pattern, and I had a hunch that it was just um, a sort of a hexagonal lattice of circles um, offset from each other, front and back. And I modeled it up in Fusion, and it looked just like what Apple had put out. So I was like, "Ding, ding, ding! Like that's a winner." 
So I machined it, and um, my my original intent actually had nothing to do with cheese. I thought it was I was just going to go straight to the soap dish um, punchline. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, this is too good an opportunity to pass up, but not in the sense that like this could go viral, more that just it was too amusing for me not to try it as a cheese grater. And at that point, there was zero thought as to how well the video would perform uh, with an audience. Um, so I honestly, I released this with zero expectation of it going viral. I did my usual standard social media, like, all right, here's an Instagram post to, to synchronize with my YouTube post. I let my Patreon people know a day ahead of time. Like, that was it. There was no extra promotion on my part. And somehow it just took off. Yeah, you're sitting at almost half a million views, which is pretty incredible for a video that doesn't feature a machine catching on fire. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, congrats on that. I tried to, like, not really make it clickbaity, but try and tried to keep the the title and the thumbnail as sort of general and broadly appealing as possible. Um, I didn't want to be, like, hardcore, like, machining 3D aluminum textures on a Shapeoko CNC. Like, that, that would just be a little too bland. And the structure of the video is, like, I sort of glossed over a lot of the fusion stuff um, just so it would, like, have a slightly broader appeal. Um, but I, I wasn't expecting the volume or the diversity of, uh, people viewing the video. Most of the mentions of the video I saw out there had a picture of it, of the finished part. I think that's probably more than anything drove traffic to the, the video because it's pretty just compelling looking part. It's kind of interesting. I, I don't know. I wouldn't have guessed it was a soap dish. Like that was your design intent when you did it, but, um, that was kind of thing. It was a bit of a mystery, right? It was a really cool shape. I like, you know, definitely immediately resonated with the the uh, Apple uh, kind of design cue. But beyond that, it was like, what is it for? <laughs> then, you know, the title said cheese grater, right? But yeah. So way back in the day when I got my Shape Oko 2, there was a video that I saw about a guy who machined a wooden soap dish, um, two-sided part. Uh, I'm sure we can, we can link to it in the show notes, but... He did a really good job of like flipping it over, indexing it in a way that was quick and easy. He had a cool like sort of repeating geometric pattern. And I filed that away in the back of my head for years thinking, oh, I'm going to do my own twist on it. Maybe I'll do like a like a three-dimensional sinusoidal plane and I'll just chop off the, the peaks and the valleys. And that'll be like the perforations for this weird 3D geometry. Um but that just, I never got around to it, or I, ne I never found a way to create that surface um, in Fusion or SolidWorks without like inputting equations, and I didn't want to do the math to figure that out. And then when I saw the, the Mac Pro grill, I was like, I can repurpose that somehow. Um, and so the, like, that's why the initial, like, someone commented like, oh, like the, the, the name of the file was like soapdish.f3d, like you gave it away there. No one's going to look at that, but if you do look closely enough, you'll see that that was my original design intent with this part. Yeah, I think, uh, and I was surprised at how easy that pattern was to reproduce looking at your video. I thought there was more to it when I saw the video, I mean, when I saw the uh, the Apple announcement, but that was actually, it's actually pretty simple, right? <laughs> Other than, you know, having to be, uh, you know, good registration on the flip, but. 
which you think about it for a company like Apple when they're like source like outsourcing the manufacturing that's not too difficult what gets me though is the fact that you need to start with a fairly thick um, piece of aluminum in order to to machine that texture into so I am really curious to see if they show or release any tidbits about how their their chassis is machined because uh, I, I got to imagine it it's probably not a very material efficient way to to create that machine now that we're talking about this it actually like i'm looking at my unibody macbook pro and that's a lot of material removal and it makes sense that um they would never ever want to increase the thickness of this machine again because every millimeter you add um, multiply that by the the top down surface area and that's the additional volume of material you need to remove, which is is wasted money on material and wasted machining time. So it is in their best interest to make the machine as thin as possible, like just besides the, the perspective that they want the machine to look sexy. But it's literally wasting money the thicker the machine is. Right, do you have any plans to make more of those? or like? Absolutely not. <laughs> this has been a... It's been a fun experience just watching different news sites pick it up, watching the view count grow, but it's so demoralizing when just the general masses descend on a video because your comment quality is almost inversely proportional to view count. The The number of comments that, that pick out like, oh, like, why did you do X, Y, or Z, or could you take a large diameter ball end mill and just use that as a drill? Um, which just, it makes me cringe to think about, but th those kinds of comments and also just the, the, the hundreds of, Oh, this is cool. Period. Comment send like that adds nothing to the conversation. Um, that that's one thing. Like I, it's hard for me to follow along with the few quality comments because of just the, the bandwidth of spam that's coming through. Um, and also the the negative comments. Um, every now and then there's a few like, oh, like this is a waste of time, whatever. Or like, like wow, look at this person. They just wasted all this material and time and money. And really it's just time. The material costs a couple dollars. They don't know that. Um, but as as the creator, your your default instinct is not to immediately dismiss a comment when it comes in. When a comment first comes in, you read it, you analyze it for its value, you think about it, and then you're like, all right, this person asked a legit question, let me type a response. If they send something negative, you think about that, you have to process it first. Your mind doesn't immediately dismiss it. You're like, is there any validity to it? And then you should say, no, there's, there's no validity to it, and so you can just disregard it. But for a brief moment, you're wondering if that person's comment has merit. And even if it's just for a split second over hundreds of comments, that does actually become a, a fairly demoralizing thing. And I never understood why, um, like, the comments that I typically get on videos are all extremely supportive. So when, like, the, the mainstream, the big YouTubers are talking about, like, are joking about, like, oh, like, the comments, like, the trolls, whatever, I never had to personally deal with something of this magnitude before. And so it's just, it's an interesting experience. I'm glad I saw it. But it also 
makes me lose a little bit of faith in humanity, and I'd rather just keep my video in our bubble of Insta Machinists and like the the YouTube maker community. It's just easier that way. And I, you need to build some uh, YouTube comment armor for your next project. <laughs> if I put out a couple more viral videos, I'm sure I'll I'll grow to to just be able to ignore these by default. Um, but it, it's just it's not in my nature to implicitly ignore or just disregard everything like i have to read it seriously first um i've also caught myself a couple times like typing a comment and then just thinking it's it's really not worth my time and i'll just delete the comment and keep going yeah yeah you almost have to time box that like regardless of how how big it grows how how many you know how much feedback and interaction you get because um, your regular viewers are going to be back on the next video, right? That might be much smaller audience. I hope so. More manageable, <laughs> right? So yeah, some of these you just got to sit back and enjoy watching the, the view count roll over like an odometer and, and you know, enjoy that for five minutes and then get to work on your next project. So uh, that is a pretty cool experience. So I've never never had anything like that. Of course, I'm not on YouTube, but uh, even Instagram. <laughs> I think my biggest Instagram post was probably 150,000 and that was uh, I don't even think it was my work I think it was something I posted from um, from AU so that's kind of that's pretty cool so what else you got going on this week um, just really just getting back in the swing of things um, I've got the the couple carbide projects that um, I want to talk over with Rob I'm working on the cam for the next big uh carbide series which uh i'll, I'll reveal in due time but it, it's still a work in progress and i'm pretty happy with it i just need to finish it before my next camping trip uh, so that's about all I'll, I'll drop hint wise on what that project is okay well I, i've uh made a little bit of progress here i haven't I, i've worked on a couple of uh customer parts but not really all that much since the last podcast I've, are these the same recurring customer parts or something new no these are all um like one once one off like do it once and never probably make that part again or talk to that customer again um some of these are samples some of these were just take hey, i need some help with something um and i actually have one coming up that I'm, it's not even a paid job it's just something i'm helping out another instagrammer with um so kind of like john did my tombstones for me is a favor, uh, I can pay that for it, right? <laughs> so this is gonna be a fun project, I can show that, finally have something I can show. I'm probably gonna start on that next week. Uh, but you probably see, saw the, um, that I finally got the four jaw chuck mounted on the pocket and see, I'll need that for this part. So that was kind of my motivation to go scramble down, find the rest of the parts I needed to mount that properly. Um, it's working pretty good, I did a couple of test cuts on it and uh, it's gonna work pretty good. I haven't tried ID work holding with it yet. I still need to do that test. Uh, I won't need it for this upcoming project, but that's actually kind of the main reason I went with the four jaw. So I could like flip it around and grab uh, some larger round stock from, from the backside, right? From the inside bore. Yeah, that should be pretty useful. I've There are times where I wish I had that capability um, and JPL Richard actually gave me a couple old lathe chucks, like mini lathe chucks that I could mount on the pocket NC. But I really gotta just give them a good scrub down with WD forty because they're they're kind of old. Um, but I'll I'll catch up to you on that soon. I think you have a Sherline. I think that's what he gave you um, the three jaw version of what I have. But it didn't. I think the back was different. So I have the ER sixteen 
kind of center hub on the back of mine, so it has to screw onto an ER16 threaded post. Which it took me a while to find the, the one with the right size threads. It turns out Shars carries exactly what I needed. And then see what else. Um, oh yeah, so I posted today. I w- I've been working on um, kind of a bigger flat tooling plate for the Pocket NC. I wanted one that kind of took up the basically as big as you could go on that machine, which is about five inches square on the mount on the rotary table. And you have to kind of it's really more of an octagon because the corners would hit um, would collide with the machine on B-axis rotation if you didn't chamfer them pretty heavily. So, uh, yeah, so I found kind of just the right geometry. I used a pocket and C simulator to measure the clearance and then, um, went in and 3d printed one up and put it on my machine and verified it. It's actually perfect. So, um, turns out their simulator is, is good for checking stuff like that. I should hope it is like, at least for checking collisions and stuff. Cause like visually that is your last line of defense before you actually run the code. So the, the whole reason I kind of started on that project was, uh, you know, I was looking at John's, John Saunders' ModVice. Um, I really like that whole system with the tooling plates and ModVice, very low profile um, work holding, right? So I kind of, they're too big to fit on, or the vice itself is too big to fit on the pocket NC, um, but like a scaled down version of that would actually be pretty good. So that was like my first step towards that project was creating a, the tooling plate and I'll have like, um, I think M4, uh, hole pattern threaded M4 hole on like 20 millimeter centers. That kills me. When I make my own version and I knock off your design, I'm going to make sure it's quarter 20. I already have like the M4 work holding cause that's what the pocket NC uses on the rotary table. That's the only reason I went metric just to kind of keep it consistent with what I'm already using for my fixtures on the pocket NC. Um, so I still got to design like a, a mod vice kind of based on John's design or, you know, based on his concept with using, he uses um, Mighty Byte. Like you basically slide the big, the movable jaw up against your work stock and it kind of. Yeah, yeah. Chris has a miniature version of that that he made. Oh yeah, that's right. On the Nomad, right? Which I need to steal, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. So I got to kind of scale that down to, you know, be practical on the pocket and see. And um, that's going to be good for some stuff where none of the other work holding really works. Have you measured the volume slash weight of this fixture plate that you're going to put on the pocket NC? It's going to be uh, pretty light because it's half inch mix six. Um, so it's probably going to be under, I'm guessing that's going to be under a pound. Okay, that's not too bad. Yeah, I can, it's like the tombstone um, is exactly one pound. Just for reference, this will probably be a little heavier because I think it's denser than. 6061. I was going to say, if, if weight's a concern, you could also sort of hollow it out from below, just do like sort of a, a grid lattice pattern of, of holes. Yeah, exactly. So um, actually, I have someone lined up or someone volunteered to make a couple of those for me today. I don't want to say who yet until they give me the okay. But um, let's just say someone who's done some pocket and see work holding work for me before. <laughs> um, but in the, you know, hopefully this will be like the last time I have to kind of lean on friends because uh, I have another big announcement. Um, I bought a new machine. So I signed... Uh, Ooh, do share. Which machine is this? Um, Daytron Neo. So that was kind of the, after like an 18-month long search and looking at a lot of machines, again, you know, kind of weighing them against the constraints that I have here around 
the amount of current I have available at the house and the amount of real estate I have in the garage. Uh, I was kind of lowering it. I was looking for like, what's the machine I could get with the smallest physical footprint on the floor um, and the biggest work area, uh, XY travel. So the Neo is you know almost perfect for what I want, the kind of work I want to do on it. Um, I actually ordered mine with the fourth axis, which is optional feature. So I'll be able to do some multi-axis work and then uh, I also have the vacuum work holding so I can basically um, convert the whole 20, I'm sorry, it's 20 inch by 16 inch table over to a giant vacuum chuck, which is pretty cool. Um, so I can do some plate work. It's a big plate work on the big for me anyway. I mean, that's relatively big for anyone because like for its footprint, the the Neo has a pretty good uh, work area. Right, right. That was kind of, I. so I, I, you know, I was looking at like used Speedios and you know, even Haas, like used Haas machines at first, last year, most of the machines that would have like the work area that I wanted were physically too large to fit in here, either too heavy or uh, too, like I would need more roof height than I have or ceiling height than I have in the garage. Most of the time they drew way too much current, right? I only have 200 amps going to the house. Um, so not that all that much really left over to run a VMC. Um, so anyway, yeah, so the Neo, it, basically I got down to two machines um, for the final decision. It was the Neo and the Haas CM1, which is their compact mill. Uh, recently got redesigned. That's a really nice looking machine too. They're very similar and uh, kind of like specs on paper. So they both have high speed spindles. The Neo's 40,000 RPM. I think the Haas is a 30,000 RPM standard. You can upgrade it to 50, 50K RPM. And they're both, you know, you can go multi-axis on both of them. Uh, the CM1 can go all the way to five axis, the Neo's four axis, but I have five axis covered already. So, uh, and I think that, you know, the other big thing is like basically, um, you know, the Haas starts at a much cheaper price, but when you add in kind of the stuff that's standard on the Neo, um, plus the options I picked for the Neo. So basically probing, you add that to the Haas, the, the probing multi-axis, uh, higher speed spindle, all that stuff. They're actually pretty close in price. Um, but they have a, the CM1, the main thing that kind of rules it out for me is it has a much smaller XY machinable range. So it's about half what, what's on the Neo. And also the feed rate's like half. So the, the Neo is 1100 inches per minute cutting feed rate. And I think it's 500 for the, for the Haas. It's still respectable. But it's it's definitely uh Oh yeah, I mean for I mean this is a guy who's you know, my pocket and C maxes out at sixty inches per minute and to me that's you know, that's full speed ahead. <laughs> so yeah, any of these are gonna be like a whole new realm of speed for me. And it'll be a long time before I probably run it at full max speed rate. But um but in the end, you know, with that hard PM spindle, um you know, you've seen that you've seen how the Daytron machines cut, right? So it's basically high RPM, fast feed rates kind of really gets pretty much through aluminum. the end mill enters the material and it just goes yeah it's a it eats through aluminum so fast um with that you know it's a lighter machine right so you're not taking big cuts with it normally um i mean they're big cuts for us but not big cuts compared to like a you know haas vm2 kind of a different strategy right um so anyway but it's more like our strategy i think right it's kind of you know we'll throw rpm at it we'll kind of keep the radial engagement fairly light and go as fast as we can right so uh, I'm looking forward to it. It should be here mid-August if everything goes to plan. 
Uh, so I got to finish up the garage work by then, get everything ready for it. Um, but I'm hoping it'll arrive here before I just let me know when to buy the plane ticket over. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, that'll kind of, it'll, I think it'll be arriving between my, um, trip to Portland for the fusion Academy and my bigger trip to Germany and emo in September. So somewhere in between there, I should actually have a, you know, I wouldn't call it a full size VMC, but you know, a pro machine compared to what I'm, what I've been running here. So it's going to kind of change what I'm looking at at Emo. Like I was really planning on going there, just, um, just, you know, check out cool machines with no intention of buying anything. But now I'm going to be looking at like some, some work holding and some other stuff. Um, it's kind of interesting how your perspective changes when you have a machine that like I, I have to tool up. Right. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, that's going to be, the timing's good. Like tooling, like, uh, consumables, like, I'm assuming uh, you're gonna have to load up on ethanol and exactly uh, compressed air, and oof. you have a long shopping list. Yeah, the garage conversion already covers a lot. Like I'll have I'll have air uh, on a permanent basis with the conversion to shop out there, and uh, the coolant. Yeah, so that's the other thing that was a plus for me. The neo uh, coolant being that ethanol based MQL is so much easier to deal with than you know, traditional coolant, right? I mean, it's limiting in what materials you can use it in, um, but the Neo itself can handle other materials. You just, if it's not like ethanol compatible or safe to use with ethanol, like uh, various material, you just use air blast or switch over to like a regular MQL. But normally like most of my work's aluminum brass Delrin, so uh, ethanol's gonna be perfect for that. And it's really like no mess to clean up, which is the other thing I don't like, you know, I was kind of, not looking forward to if I went with a you know, more traditional system, even like the Tormach. Um, I have to deal with parts cleaning and post-process machining activities, right, related to to getting the, sh the part ready to ship, right? So that's a little bit easier with something like a MQL, uh, ethanol MQL, right? Just kind of almost cleans as it goes, right? And then there's basically no trace of the coolant when the parts off the machine. As much as I like the smell of a machine shop, sometimes I do tire of having to wipe off my hands on my jeans after I touch something with coolant on it. Yeah, and my, my wife's still going to have a car in one bay, so like if I was going with something, you know, your traditional coolant diluted with water, and you end up with that kind of mist in there, right? So, and it gets on everything, so I knew that wasn't going to work too well. <laughs> um, the ethanol actually uses so little of it like I, th I can't remember how big the tank is it's i think it's five liters so yeah i, I don't i don't think uh, the coolant's going to be much of a problem for me compared to what i would have been looking at with anything else so i don't want to lose sight of the fact that this is the digital fabrication experiment and you have clearly been the most successful among either of us in terms of stepping up their game what what sort of uh precipitated this decision like how are you what's your how did you come up with a business case and determine that like yes the monthly payments make sense because i have the jobs to keep this new awesome machine occupied so i have a pretty good i have an roi in mind uh duration right um if things go as predicted based on uh kind of the jobs that are available to me if i get this machine um that i've talked to talk to some people about um even if i get half of those you know you, you never get what, what everyone's 
you know what I'm saying? You never get exactly what you plan for. But even if I get like 50% yeah. of those. Sometimes you get more. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, I, I gave myself a pretty lenient ROI, like a four-year ROI on this machine. I think uh, I should be able to get that. Um, pretty confident with that, with my plan. Um, and it's going to be, I mean, so that's like mostly third-party work. But it's also going to enable me to do some of the product development from my products that I want to kind of carry forward to the next step. Um, and this is a four-year ROI with your your current projection based on schedule, like your current workload? Or does this also factor in the fact that perhaps in a couple of years you might retire and go full-time with the little job shop thing? Yeah, that's actually a very good question. No, my ROI assumes that I keep my day job. So one of the like cool things about the Neo or any of the Daytron machines is they're fast, right? So I can actually do parts that, you know, in the limited time that I have available in evenings and weekends. Um, it's, it's a different time scale when I'm used to producing parts on the smaller machines, right? Yeah, that's true. I, I have spent as much time doing cam as I have running something on the Pocket NC. And if that Pocket NC ran 10 times faster, the majority of the time I spend is in front of Fusion, actually. Yeah, exactly. And I have, um, so most of my ROI is going to be coming from repeat work. So I get to, you know, the cam stuff and work holding while more complex up front, um, I get to more pieces to amortize that cost over uh, on the recurring work. So, um, and I'm looking like, I don't know if you, I'd call this cheating, but like with this machine, it's kind of, I've got it set up for, uh, with the vacuum work holding, I can basically do aluminum plate work, pretty large work up to like, you know, 20 by 16. Um, so that's kind of the jobs I'm trying to kind of get on a regular basis because they're fairly easy to do on this machine. And work holding's super quick to set up with the vacuum work holding. So um, I don't want to call it like the bread and butter because that's not necessarily high profit work. Um, but it's fairly easy and I can crank out a bunch of that on nights and weekends. Um, and then I've got the rotary axis and some other work holding for that for doing my more traditional work, commercial work, which is smaller prototyping parts and very small, you know, small production run. Um, most of the stuff I do, you know, just because of the machines I have here and my preferences, stuff that would, you know, fit in a two inch cube of stock, right? Start from that. That would be a big piece for me, right? Most of them are probably one inch or smaller. So um, I'll continue to do that on the Neo. And now I have the ability to potentially do, you know, multiples of those at a time if I get the right work holding set up for that. So it's fun. And then I have the rotary axis to do uh, four axis parts, which is, or, you know, three axis, three plus one. Um, can't go full five axis on that. But for me and the kind of work I do, um, most of that work is going to work just as well with just a fourth axis. So, the, uh, I mean, the other piece of the plan <laughs> someday here is to, um, you know, at some point Pocket and C is going to come out with the, I don't know what they're going to call it, but I call, I've been calling it the pro machine, right? It's going to be more capable than even the V250, uh, bigger work pieces, more power in the spindle, more speed, higher feed rate. Um, so that's going to kind of cover me at some point down the road for my full five axis capabilities. So it's going to be, an, you know, with those two machines, I think I'll have a pretty good set of capabilities here for the type of work I do. Pretty good is an understatement. I mean, just the, the multi-axis capability that's there is 
puts you in like the the, the pretty high upper percentile for uh, job shop capabilities. Yeah, I'd say um, so. I don't, you know, I wouldn't take on. You, know, you, you see these folks that do true five axis work all the time. You know, the big shops, the aerospace shops. I'm not doing that kind of work. Um, even though I have a machine that can do simultaneous five axis, it's not. You don't have the cam package to really do that properly. I don't have the accuracy either for what most of those parts require, right? The, I mean, if they really need full five axis, they're probably beyond at least my skill level, if not my machine's abilities. Um, you know, so like for me, full five axis has been more of a finishing strategy. Um, but almost all my commercial work is really just three plus two or three plus one or three axis, like on those Dillon gears. So, and that's actually stuff I like to take on commercially. Like, I don't know if I'd be comfortable taking on a complex uh, five axis part, you know, like a turbine blisk or whatever. Um, not ready for that. So, so yeah, I think uh, this is basically going to speed me up. Uh, it'll help me if I decide to extend, you know, I don't know yet, like it's a big ticket item. So I'm rethinking, like, I don't have to change my retirement date, but I might just to kind of get a little peace of mind, you know, <laughs> and keep the wife happy. Right. So we'll see right now. I'm just kind of, you're talking, pushing back the retirement date. So you have a, a fixed income, right? Exactly. It's like, uh, you know, makes me maybe because if if I were in your shoes, I would retire early just so I could spend more time on the daytron. Well, I think like if I'm really lucky, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but at some point, if I start getting to the point where I'm turning down work only because I don't have the time to do it, like I have the capability, I have the machine, um, but I'm starting to turn down a significant amount of work just because of the machinist time available, then I think it's worth reconsidering. Right? Then I have to do that kind of balance between um you know what i'm getting in the day job versus what i could provide if i went full-time uh in my home shop right so you know right now i'm starting at pretty much zero right with the new machine i have no no income on it yet but uh, we'll see where it goes are you uh considering different ways of um landing more work like maybe having a website just with capabilities like are you going to advertise this or is this going to be all word of mouth so I already have several things lined up. So I've got, um, like I said, my existing, some of my existing clients uh, have already been sending me work or trying to send me work right, that I just can't do because I don't have a big enough machine. Um, either the, the part's too big to even fit on the machine here. Um, other than that, it's you know well within my capabilities. It's similar to what I'm making now, just on a larger scale. Um, some of it's, I turn it down because of the material, right? It's just something I can't work with, work with well here. Like, uh, uh, some you know some of the tool steels and stuff, and that's not likely to change even with the the neo. It's not really a machine. I mean, it can do steel, it can do titanium, um, but it's not you know it's kind of like the pocket and see in the sense that you'd want that to be occasional work, not the main day in day out kind of material. It's it's really optimized for aluminum, fast aluminum machining or non ferrous metals. So uh, yeah, I I could see doing some titanium and stainless steel work on the fourth axis, some small round stock work. Um, but for the most part, I'm going to stick with aluminum and um, brass and, and the engineering plastics. And if I do that, so I've got, you know, my clients got quite, or a couple of my clients have quite a bit of stuff that I can now basically bid on for, with, with this machine. Uh, you know, I still got the stuff that comes in through Instagram too. And I have, uh, I'm going to try to develop some local business. So that's something I haven't tried yet because I haven't really had the machine to do that, I guess. I'm not counting on that, but there's a possibility that that might 
lead somewhere. Um, Are there uh, any sort of local industries that would be promising to target? There's medical research is pretty big in San Antonio. It's a big uh, university medical teaching and R&D um, presence here. So, I mean, I can't do everything, right? There's lots of things I can't do because I'm not like an FDA approved manufacturer, but there's things they use in the lab that don't necessarily need to meet that. Um, they do a lot of custom stuff, right? So small parts. So uh, potentially that's a, that's a lead. I know someone that's kind of doing some of that work now and um, says there's like way more than he can handle. So we'll see where that goes. And see what else. Uh, the only downside is most of that's titanium. Um, although they do, they do a lot of uh, uh, plastic too. So that's kind of, that's also interesting. Yeah, so I was looking at stuff like, I don't know if it's exometry or zeometry, however you pronounce it, X-O-M-E-T-Y. Quite a few like uh, machining, I'd call them service aggregators, basically. They're, they're fronting uh, job shops, right, and, and distributing work to them and taking a cut, right? So I don't know. I, I've heard good and bad things about those guys. might be worth a try to see if you know, there's some small stuff that my overhead's small enough that it makes sense to do here. But... Um, that's just really, that's more of a research topic for me, but I don't, I'm not counting on that. It's not in my business plan. It might turn out it works for me. I don't know. So I'll probably give that a look. And yeah, I don't plan on doing any advertising because like I said, I think I'll have enough to, you know, I, I still have limited shop hours, right? Until I quit working uh, the day job. So I think I can keep that schedule pretty full. And I still want to, you know, work my work in here too. I've, like I said, I've got some product development stuff that's been, kind of sitting, waiting for me to get a machine that was kind of fast enough to do it or big enough to do it. So I think, uh, you know, basically I need a little bit bigger machine to make the work holding for uh, the work holding products I want to make for like the pocket and see and uh, at least get the prototypes done. I mean, some of that stuff is probably not high enough volume that I couldn't consider making the production parts here, but it, some of the stuff might be. so. Um, I've got options there too, but I want to do like all the prototyping and everything in-house because it's so much quicker, right? Than having to shop it out and wait for the part to come back. That is an exciting amount of ambition. And I can't wait for your Instagram story. Uh, well, you don't do stories, do you? I can't wait for your Instagram post of a uh, truck pulling out in front of your house with a pallet of just aluminum stock on it that you have to deal with <laughs> well first i gotta deal with the truck that shows up with the machine on it and how to get it up my uh fairly steep driveway <laughs> but uh yeah i think i'll be i'll be looking for riggers pretty soon um yeah so the i mean the other thing i want to say is like i don't what i do in the inside shop isn't going to change like um and the first one i had to tell that to was my wife i said you know even when we built out the garage i'm not my workshop inside is going to stay the same. You know, the outside stuff, the garage stuffs were stuff that just doesn't belong in the house. Uh, the only change I'm going to make is my shape Oko is going to move into the garage with the Nomad. I'm sorry, with the Neo. Um, and that'll free up some room in my room. I'll probably set up another workbench there and just kind of have a, an assembly and metrology section inside here, which is something I've been needing for a while, getting a little cramped <laughs> in here right now with the microscope and everything. So that's going to be like the main change physically inside the, inside the existing spare bedroom workshop. Um, I'm trying to think what, yeah. So like the five axis, the stuff I do in the pocket and see is going to continue. I'll still take on work 
for all the machines I have here. Like, I'm not going to change really what I'm taking on. It's just now it'll be a decision, right? Does this make more sense to run on the Neo versus one of the other machines here, right? Um, a lot of the work I get, like even with the Neo, I'd still have to target the Pocket NC because it's specifically a client trying to determine if the Pocket NC can make their part right before they go spend money on a Pocket NC. So that's that work will continue. What you'll basically be seeing in my social media posts is um, stuff I post now plus a lot more uh, uh, Neo footage coming in there, right? You you say that now, but I am I am really curious to see how your your scheduling works out for you once once you're actually immersed in this life. I think the first couple months as you get settled and are both trying to run the machine and also learn the machine, it's going to take up a lot more time than you think. Oh yeah. Yeah, so this whole year like my ROI clock doesn't start until January 1st, 2020. Um, my payments start before that. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, fortunately, I, I, I'm the lender, so it's not that difficult, but um, I'm awfully nice guy <laughs> when it comes to that. But, uh, but yeah, so I'm gonna, I basically, you know, I'll probably take on a little bit of work um, with the understanding that, you know, it's really just like piloting the process. Um, I've got at least one client that's, you know, willing to kind of let me do some proof parts before he needs the real parts and probably be part of my bidding process, right? But yes, yeah, it's, it's going to be uh, just getting comfortable with the machine, right? Just like I did with all the machines here, I, I didn't take on any commercial work until I was comfortable that I, you know, basically could predict what was going to come off the machine. Yeah, so the good news is, you know, most of the stuff I do at first on the Neo will be stuff I can show because it's all my own, you know, test parts, right? Some of my clients were pretty good with me showing their work, like the gears, you know, haven't had any problem with that client. He's been happy to let me show that. So I think I'll have work on the Neo, even commercial work that, you know, some of which I can show. A lot of it probably I can't. But I think there'll be a, there'll be a steady stream of posts coming off all the machines here. There'll just be times when I'm like really, really busy and can't post anything, right? Even now that happens, right? I'll, I'll get a couple of, you know, something big that I got to work on, can't show. Um, kind of ties me up from even doing any of my own projects so but there's always there's, there's little gaps in there in between where i can work on other stuff and i'm, I'm counting on it <laughs> that might be my chance to catch up and follow account <laughs> exactly so yeah and I, i'm kind of curious like i don't know if like me doing work on something like a neo or if i had a Haas or whatever would be as interesting to my followers i mean i think some of the interest is it's not so much me it's the machines i'm using because they're kind of unique and i'm doing odd things I'm doing things that most people wouldn't, at least a year or two ago, wouldn't consider those machines capable of doing. Um, I think you're kind of doing the same thing you invents with the shape Oko. So uh, some of that's the, I think, part of the draw. So I'm still trying to keep it fairly accessible, though. We're still at the the upper limits of of what most people would expect to do, or or even beyond what they expect to be able to do. Yeah, on that class of machine, right? So when when I do a part, you know, a tricky aluminum part on the Neo, I don't know if anyone's going to care. It's like, oh yeah, of course I can do that, right? <laughs> or if you did it on the Haas, right? Whatever. It's like, that's not so surprising. Um, so yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see where that, if the interest kind of still is there when I'm working with a different machine. Um, I mean, my take is maybe just like, we kind of have this natural inclination to push the machines beyond what people think they can do. I don't know how long it's going to take me to find that limit on the Neo, but... I would love to have at some point 
someone would say, I can't believe you made that on the Neo. <laughs> that, that would be like my mark of success. Anyway, I've got a long way to go before I get there, I think. Yeah. I was going to say that I think my uh, theory is that people, a large majority of them, maybe about 60, 70%, might just be there just, just to watch chips fly. They might not care that much what machine it is or just the, the technical challenges. They're just there to see cool things. So that's, that's me as a, as a consumer of Instagram, uh, an instant machinist, that's like, anytime there's a spindle, I don't care what machine it is. Uh, if it's, especially if it's cutting metal, I'm probably going to be happy watching that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Is there like CNC fandom? That's I'm, I'm a member. <laughs> yeah. So the tooling plate, um, when I was designing it this week, I was thinking I'd be making on the Neo, like be my first project, um, my first me project to do on there. Uh, but now that I have the offer to potentially get it much, much more quickly, or at least a couple of, couple of them run off. Um, I need to start working on the, the rest of that setup, which is gonna be some clamps and, and hopefully a mini mod vice. Um, I was actually going to try to fit like a dual station mod vice is which, what I really want, but I don't know. It's, it's five. Like I said, the, the longest dimension is five inches. Um, so I don't know if I can really fit anything I do. Like the vice itself is actually going to kind of, if I did a dual station, I think the vice would be hanging off the end. I can't have anything hanging off the edge of that tooling plate cause it'll collide. So, uh, with the, Unless you're like really, really conscientious about which directions you rotate that B axis. Like I want full rotation. Um, like I'm designing it to support full rotation. Cause if I don't, I know at some point I'll forget that I have that limitation. Yeah. My, my design constraint is to make sure whatever work holding I design for that's going to stay within the, the boundary of the table. Um, just to make sure I don't have any collisions with the A axis plate. And the other thing I got to look out for is the tool probing, right? So I got to make sure the tables or the tooling plate doesn't kind of, there's kind of a no-go zone, you know what I'm talking about, where the... Yep, where the tool is just passing the uh, the the table and you're wondering if it's going to collide and it just barely clears, but your finger is on a feed hold anyway. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So I don't want to, I don't want to shorten that distance uh, at all. So um, the kind of cutout I did on the, the octagon shape takes care of most of that my point was like if i if i've got actual parts or working plates coming soon i need to go ahead and i'll probably spend this week and next week working on the accessories for that for that plate so i can start testing it and i'm sure that's you know this is v1 i'm sure there'll be a v2 and a v3 before i'm ready to say um, this is a good design and don't know where i go if that's going to be a product or just something you know most of my stuff i i build it because i need it here but like someday i'd like to offer the tombstones and maybe this solution um, for pocket and C owners. We'll see. Yeah, that should be cool. Uh, if you have any rejects uh, during development, I would be more than happy to take them off your hands. Yeah, actually I saw another really nice, um, when I posted about that plate today, uh, one of my, um, one of the other pocket and C V250 owners, uh, I don't wanna say his name because I didn't ask him if it's okay to say on the podcast, but uh, he posted, uh, or he sent me a, a DM with the, he basically had, just finished doing almost the same thing and made a custom tooling plate for his V250. So his was fully round, but it took up the full, you know, five inches. He could probably go actually a little bit, just a little bit bigger with the round one, I think probably 5.1 inches um, before you collide. So, uh, but he had like a circular pattern on the, his was designed for bolting stock 
directly to the to the fixture plate, which is also it's a nice design. Um, it wouldn't work so well with the mod bikes because the, the the whole pattern's like polar, right? Or it's angular. It's not. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not, not a grid. Yeah, exactly. Um, but still, I might you know might steal that idea too, just for myself. <laughs> uh, make one like that because I do a lot of uh, on the other machines here. I do a lot of um, bolted you know bolt the stock down to the plate custom fixtures and that's like one of my favorite work holdings it takes a little longer to set up but um for repeat work like when i was doing the fidget spinners that just works so well and it was especially for two two-sided parts how about you you got any uh you've got your v210 back you've got any uh thing planned not not nothing up and coming uh, you know the uh that dragon capsule bottle opener that i made i want to make one for uh no that would take way too long i want to make one for crew dragon um before it launches because i think that'd be a nice tie-in the problem is i need to model that because there is no good model of that on thingiverse um create the tool pads for it um but i also want to try to do it in a way you know how, well i don't know if you know but the the way it docks with the international space station it's got a little um, cover over the hatch at the the nose of the capsule and so I was thinking maybe I could have like a moving part in this capsule or something that conceals the bottle opener I don't know I might be overcomplicating it but I'm just trying to think of ways to leverage the the unique design elements of that capsule and set this bottle opener apart or I'll just machine out of wood it will, it'll be a static display um, but I want to I want to do it at a higher level of detail um, but I don't need to worry about that until November because SpaceX kind of blew up their last test capsule and they're they're still putting together the pieces. Um, so that bought me a little bit of time. It was originally scheduled for around August. So I've got a couple months. Um, I would like to get the machine running before then. Um, it's just the, the queue that I have with three axis projects is um, longer than I would like. Speaking of deadlines, so we're we're just about a month out from uh, Autodesk, the Fusion 360 Academy. Have you got all your classes picked out? Uh, well, I mean, I've picked out classes. The problem is there's some conflicts here and there. Um, so I'm a little torn as to which classes I do want to take. Um, have you sort of nailed that out like nice and cleanly or are you also agonizing over a couple conflicts? The methodology I followed was if I went to that course at AU last year, then it's a priority two, right? Instead of taking, you know, doing it again, even if I like the speaker and most of those were worth sitting through again, because either they were, um, there's a lot of material. And if I, you know, just like a good movie, right? If you sit through it again, you'll pick up stuff you missed the last time. But I, I kind of focused on, on stuff that last year at AU, when I had conflicts and the classes that I wanted to go to and I missed it last year, I'm signed up for those first. So that, I'm pretty happy with that strategy. That's getting me into a lot of the stuff that I had regrets about missing last year. Um, and a lot of the speakers I wanted to see or listen to. It sounds like emotionally you're a lot less conflicted about it than I am, which is good. That's pretty much all I got going on. I, uh, you know, there's like a lot of, I don't say excitement, but a lot of kind of, you know, last couple of weeks really focused on the Neo deal and getting that nailed down. And now it's kind of a long wait for the machine to get here. Um, so kind of my next big must do in July is the garage, right? Finish the garage and model, make sure I got everything 
uh, set up the electrical and all that stuff for to be ready for the delivery of the machine and set up. So I got a little bit of time to do that, but uh, I'll be, probably be surprised how quickly that time evaporates. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's going to be my priority for the next uh, four weeks, just making sure um, the garage is livable, you know, it's inhabitable as a shop and ready for hookup of the Neo and air compressor and everything else I got to hook up in there, vacuum pump. Did you uh, figure out yet whether or not you're going to do solid walls or like some sort of flexible wall partition? So I had a contractor come out and kind of do my Taj Mahal version. Like if I did everything like really, really perfect the way I wanted it and that quote was crazy. So, and I, I had a feeling it would be, um, but I just wanted to hear, um, that was like drywall, everything kind of, I would have had less space doing that, uh, just cause I want to keep my garage door, like the roll up door. I want to keep that functional, um, settled on a uh, much simpler design. So basically I'm going to go, I'm going back to what I originally was going to do, which is just put one of those, I don't know what you call them. They're like vertical curtains, right? The, that they use in freezers to go across the door or climate controlled warehouse. Yeah, I see them at like Costco yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So Uline sells them. Um, and they're really designed for kind of climate controlled areas, right. That need high traffic, like forklifts going through them. So I'm gonna set that up between my bay and my wife's car bay. And that'll keep kind of the, the mess for the most part, not that there really can be a lot, but we'll keep the mess, the noise and the AC in there. So, uh, and I'll insulate, I also have to insulate my doors, my garage doors. Um, the outside wall turns out it's insulated. I thought it wasn't, but it is. And then the other wall is, um, so I basically I have two walls will be drywall that are existing and they're both insulated. So I don't have to do any work there. I thought I did. Uh, I'm going to probably put some more insulation in the attic over the garage. There's some in there now, but it's not very thick. So I'll probably put another layer in there. And then, uh, I'm going to go with the Home Depot, like a Honeywell floor mounted or you know, roll around. I think it's like 17,000 BTU air conditioner slash heater heat pump. So I'm going to try that. Um, I also have the option of bringing in central air from the house, which is what the contractor wanted to do, but I've got some reservations about that. So you'd be at the mercy of the other zones in the house. Exactly. And, and, you know, in the summer, it's like, it has a hard enough time keeping up. Um, I don't really need to add another X hundred cubic feet for it to keep cool. Right. So I'd rather have kind of extra capacity for that. And realistically, I expect you to have to run that garage full time. Yeah, exactly. Especially in the heat of the summer with machines running. It's going to be a lot of BTUs. Yeah, so I'm, I'm over buying all my BTUs. I'm kind of getting the biggest unit I can run on 110 volts. And because uh, I'm keeping my 220 circuits for the machines and for the air compressor and stuff like that. Yeah, so I mean, it actually doesn't work too well for me if I can't run this in the garage. Because I've got other things i got to get in there too, right? I've got other stuff I'll be doing in there. Um, Okay, well, um, I think uh, I'm going to call it a wrap. So I gotta... Yeah, you've got yourself a, a fair amount of editing to do. Yeah, well, uh, we'll get a good show out of this, I think. I think so. All right, well, I appreciate it as always, Winston, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, fantastic chatting with you. Have a good one, Eddie. You too. Good night, Winston.